What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris Boutte. And today, we have another episode where we're talking to a fantastic author. And I'm starting to realize, like, I'm always like, yeah, this is a really great conversation. But first off, first off, I think they are really, really good conversations and interesting. I always try to switch them up and cover different angles. But anyways, anyways, maybe I should tone it down because if I say they're all great, then, you know, is there anyone that's like better than the others? And, you know, it kind of starts to dilute it a little bit. But anywho, today I'm talking to John Rouch. And check it out. This is such, <laughs> such a great conversation. We're talking about his brand new book, Constitution of Knowledge. Okay. So let me kind of give you a little bit of backstory, right? So I've been following uh, Greg Lukiana for a while. And if you don't know who he is, you should. He co-authored a book called The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt, who is one of my favorite moral philosophers, taught me a lot about morality through his book, The Righteous Mind. But anyways, The Coddling of the American Mind talks a lot about some of the issues we have today on like college campuses and not being able to have like diversity of opinions and you know how that's kind of damaging our youth and you know holding people back from growing and this next generation and all that it's an excellent book it's like a bestseller everybody needs to read it if you haven't yet well anyways he recommended a book called Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch it was written in the 90s and typically I don't like books that aren't I don't know, within the last five to 10 years, I know there's a lot of wisdom that we can get from older books, but I typically stick to newer books because the world is constantly changing and uh, technology makes such an impact on societies and everything like that. So I try to read newer books, but anyways, Greg recommended this book from Jonathan Rauch from back in the 90s, and I was like, screw it. He says, this is one of the most important books of our lifetime, I'll read it. And I started that book, I did the audio version, it's narrated by Penn Jillette, and I was obsessed. I was obsessed with this book. It you know, was written in the 90s, but he was talking about how we need to you know, figure out what truth is and make sure that science is getting out there and how we can have better conversations. And it was crazy because this book was written in the 90s, but so much of it was applicable today. But one of the reasons I really got hooked on the book is he made arguments that A, I hadn't heard before, and B, that actually helped change some pretty strongly held beliefs I had. So anyways, fast forward, figured out he had a brand new book coming out, The Constitution of Knowledge, and I got it and I binged it. Greg Lukianoff, he made the connection. So Greg, if you're listening, thank you very much. And we set up this interview and this is such a great conversation. We talk about tribalism and the search for truth and misinformation that's being spread around and science. And what's interesting is John kind of turns it around on me and interviews me a little bit. And we talk about cancel culture and I talk about some things that I have not talked about in a very long time because a lot of us who have the internet mob come after us we we try to just put it behind us and you know just get get over it you know what i mean and 
yeah, um, I, I thank John in this interview, and I, I realize I haven't thanked people like Greg and so many others who are having these conversations because now I know that there's a community of people out there who are against these kind of uh, internet mobs that come after people and try to, you know, uh, change the narrative and get people fired. And yeah, like you'll hear in this episode, people were legitimately threatening my mother, my girlfriend, and it was it was a, an experience that I don't wish on my worst enemy. But anyways, I hope that is a decent introduction. I'm really excited for this conversation with John for you all to hear it. And please do me a favor, check out the description, make sure you're following John, get a copy of this book as well as his other book, Kindly Inquisitors. All right, and while you're down there, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. If you're not yet, I'm always posting about upcoming interviews, uh, books that I'm reading, all sorts of stuff. So make sure you're following me on social media. But anyways, that was a very long itch, uh, intro, but I think it was worth it, all right? But here we go. Here is my conversation with Jonathan Rausch about his brand new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Hello, John. How are you doing today? I'm happy to be here. I'm really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited that we were able to get connected. So uh, yeah, real quick, we were talking a little bit before, but I was introduced to your work by Greg Lukianoff. Uh, and yeah, uh, a few weeks ago, he's, he recommended Kindly Inquisitors. I'm like, oh, what's this book? And I wanted to check it out, even though you wrote it back in the 90s, I believe it was. 1993. Yeah, I, I listened to it. The, it was uh, narrated by Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette. I love <laughs> yeah. that. And so I, good. I, I binged it. I was like, does this guy, John, have more books? And fortunately, you had a brand new book coming out, The Constitution of Knowledge. I binged it in like a day or two. So yeah, that's how I was introduced to you. But for everybody out there from my audience who has not yet met you, tell us about yourself and the book. That one right there. So there's the book. I'm told that that every author on on every video show should show the book at least three times. <laughs> so, uh, so, so so watch for that. So I'm a journalist by profession, and I've written about a lot of things. But I have a background in history and philosophy of science. And in the late '80s and early '90s, became very worried about the state of of not only free speech, but our system for finding knowledge, which I called at the time liberal science. I wrote a book about it and it's called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. And I call it a free speech book as shorthand, but really it's more, it's really about how we get knowledge in a mm -hmm. society that is sane and civil and smart and threats to the system to get knowledge. And that's a masterpiece of the English language. It's now accepted universally as a classic on a par with Shakespeare, if not mm -hmm. higher. Um, and, and then it, um, I went away. I worked on other things. I was a gay marriage advocate, for example, for a long time. And mm -hmm. I wrote and still write a lot about politics. Yeah. I'm at the Brookings institution. And then I came back when all of those themes resurfaced, kindly inquisitors got famous again, you know, resurfaced. People said this book's more relevant than ever. And I realized that 
the what with cancel culture and Trump maggot disinformation, I had to go back into that vineyard and and update, expand on those ideas. And that's this book. Number two. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> Who's counting? Yeah. And and I think that's that's one of the first things I wanted to ask you about because as I mentioned, I read Kindly Inquisitors probably a week or two before the Constitution of Knowledge came out. And I think what blew me away the most um, was, was that you were looking at some of these issues back then, and a lot of them are here now. So, you know, when talking about the free exchange of ideas and having conversations and stuff, have, have you seen in the last 20, 30 years, things get better, worse, or, you know, because like you said, like you, you, thought it was time to come back and kind of update this. So, so what's, what's changed and what stayed the same? It's different. I just have to ask though, before I answer, what's it like reading those two books back to back? I've never even done that. And of course I haven't come to Kindly Inquisitors for the first time in, in 2021. I wrote yeah. it in 1993. So what, what, can you just, just tell me a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, if any future guests hear this, I love when authors ask me questions as well. So yeah, it was, uh, I think the first thing, uh, like I mentioned, is just just being able to compare then to now um, and seeing so many different, uh, or no, just so many similarities, right? Because you were talking about things in like the Reagan and Bush era and, and things like that. And that's when I was a kid. I was born in 85. And I look back because... I, I found it really interesting because I'm a product of, you know, social media. I'm a millennial, so I grew up on social media. So there's this narrative that social media has done all this and it's what's polarizing everybody. And I've had, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Professor uh, Chris Bale from Duke, he runs the Polarization Lab. And we, you know, he debunks some of the, you know, uh, conventional wisdom about what social media is doing. So I think reading that book and then reading uh, the new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, um, it was interesting seeing like, like the new topics that you kind of had to cover, like, uh, you know, when you talk about the trolls and you talk about how, you know, Donald Trump is this dude who was able to use social media to just create this whole new strategy for like politics and stuff like that. So it was cool to see the, the evolution. And I'll say this, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about great authors is when I could read back-to-back -back books, because when I find an author, I go deep, and you had enough difference between the two, because some authors just release books. I'm like, this is the exact same as the last book. So you did a very good job with that between the two books as well. Well, that, that's music to my ears, and that answer is super interesting, because one of the surprises that I've had as an author is Kindly Inquisitors you know, it kind of disappeared after initial publication. Mm. It was on the front page of the New York Times book review. So I thought, well, it's going to be a bestseller. Hardly anyone bought it. People didn't notice it. They really didn't understand it. They didn't, they didn't quite get it. And then about five years ago, three or four years ago, it really started resurfacing and mm. it, people started talking about on, on Twitter. And what they kept saying to my great interest was this book, I can't believe this book was written 25 or however many years ago. This is so fresh and relevant. This speaks to me right now today. And that's mm -hmm. part of why I wrote the new book um, because those themes, it turns out, are, are not new. You're correct. It's not just social media that's the problem here. What we've seen since Kindly Inquisitors is the rise of new forms of disinformation and attacks on our epistemic constitution, the constitution of knowledge. 
So what's the same and what's changed? What's the same is that the constitution of knowledge, as I call it, we'll talk about what that is. Mm-hmm. It is always under attack. It has been since day one. The enemies and their tactics and their complaints against it change, uh, but they never go away for all kinds of reasons. It's, it's a controversial system, right? It tells us what's true and what's not true. It asks us to trust strangers in faraway places. It says that we can never be certain of anything. It says we have to take other people's word for it. It mm-hmm. says that, that we have to go out and check and do a lot of really difficult, expensive, time-consuming things if we want to make knowledge. It says, if God spoke to me and told me truth, well, that doesn't even count. And it tells me if I'm a demagogue or a dictator and I want to take over the country or establish a cult of personality and facts mm-hmm. get in my way, well, I'm not going to like that either. Mm-hmm. So it's always had enemies. It always will. Your children, your grandchildren, their grandchildren will have to get up every morning for the rest of their lives and explain the key dictates of the Constitution of Knowledge. That's the freedom of speech and the disciplines of fact. Mm-hmm. They'll have to explain that from scratch every day. And and always will. And we just have to be cheerful about that because actually we're doing incredibly well. So yeah. that's what's the same. What's changed is when I was writing in 1993, we were looking at ideological attacks from left-wing scholars, a lot of them in academia. Um, and now we're looking at attacks from, first of all, outside academia in a big way. And mm-hmm. that's coming from Russians on the outside, Trump and MAGA on the inside, disinformation, um, other forms of of information warfare. And then the other thing is that um, the other kind, the you know the kind that's that's going after people for uh, you know saying unorthodox or politically incorrect things. That's that's happening less now from official speech mm. codes and formal ideologues, and less from peer pressure. It's called cancel culture for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not usually a speech code. It's a cultural thing where people gang up on other people. So mm-hmm. it's more about peer pressure and social enforcement now. So those are some things that are alike and some things that are changed. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do, I do want to dive into the cancel culture and the and the uh, dogpiling and everything, as I mentioned to you, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about my experience. But yeah, I was just baffled. Uh, it was literally, I, I wish I was exaggerating, but it was hundreds of thousands of strangers coming after me. Uh, you talk about it, you know, in your book, uh, you know, uh, people going after jobs, employers, like people were going after my mom and she's a psychologist and speaks at events and stuff like that. They were going to those events and, and, and it's wild, but uh, I want to dive into that more in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about like, so you're all about us just having conversations and everything like that. I just recently finished uh, Nadine Strawson's book on uh, called hate. Um, And because as somebody who's pretty liberal, right. And I'm half African-American. Right. And I'm like, everything in me wants to censor speech and you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't do that. Right. So I, I love reading books like yours and others that can tell me and remind me why it's so important for us to have conversations and discuss these things. So from all of your experience, why do you think it's so difficult um, for us to talk about things that we disagree with, right? Like you, like you mentioned, you were a gay marriage activist and all that, and you've had to probably talk to a lot of, like, I'm guessing fundamentalist Christians and all that, like, 
How? Oh, you'd be surprised. A lot of progressives didn't really want to hear it. Really? Yeah. When I started, the attitude was, you know, really, um, we don't care what you do in your bedroom, but do you have to <laughs> flaunt it? Do you have to thrust it in our face? So yeah, I heard a lot of that. So it's, it's, it's kind of the foundational question. What happens when you take human beings and you take them as individuals or small tribes, which is basically how we're wired to behave, mm -hmm. and you tell them to go find truth? Well, the answer is that they will do an okay job, actually a pretty good job, if, if it's something that affects our lives personally and directly, and where we get good, strong, immediate feedback on whether we're right or wrong, like is that a tiger in the bush, or is it a breeze, or is where is the where is the next tribe camped, mm -hmm. and are they hostile? So we're good at that, and we need to be to survive, and we have bullshit detectors. When it comes to more abstract and general issues, we're not so good. That's things like what is the cause of the disease that's afflicting our group, mm -hmm. um, or which god do we worship in order to make it rain, um, or why does it rain? Um, and it turns out on those bigger abstract things, the way we believe is primarily we, we not only believe, but we perceive in ways that enhance our status and our self-esteem because our survival depends on having high status in our tribe, being accepted. Uh, otherwise, you know, if we're cast out, if we live alone, we die. Mm -hmm. And our beliefs are wired so that we'll have harmony with the people around us so that we'll have tribal solidarity. That's mm -hmm. a lot of Theorists think that's where, where, where religion came from. It binds the tribe together around a set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, though, is our sacred beliefs usually aren't true. Uh, we talk to each other. We think we're getting truth, but in fact, we're just hearing back what we're saying to each other. Um, then we split into sects because we disagree. We can't handle the split. Tribes split. They go to war or they don't go to war, but one side dominates the other, oppresses it, silences it, expels it, throws it in jail, kills mm -hmm. it. And that's pretty much how we did it for the first 200,000 years. And that really didn't work very well because we lived in pretty much ignorance and oppression compared to what we have now. So that's the baseline. And the big question that's, that's hard to explain is why did that ever change? I mean, how do we ever get out of that situation? And that's what this book is about. <laughs> I love it. You did you did great. You hit all three. Now the rest is just extras. Oh <laughs> uh, I I've been I've been wrestling with this for a little bit. I want I would love your opinion on this kind of like indi individualistic perception versus like tribalism. So for example, uh when I really got tried to understand cancel culture and mob mentality and all that, I, I came across the work of Leon Festinger and cognitive dissonance. I'm a big psychology nerd and I, I dove into that. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Two conflicting beliefs. Okay, it's hard to deal with, right? So on one hand, there's this, there's this dissonance and I, see, I could see how that plays into tribalism, but um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, work of Robin Hanson. He wrote a book called The Elephant in the Brain. Recently he had, he had him on and our, our whole last night. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So we were talking all about signaling and, you know, because I, I, I sit back and I watch what people tweet about on social media or say and do and what they wear. And it all seemed like signaling. So I loved his book. So 
going back to what you're talking about, like our evolutionary, you know, background and how we had to fit in with our tribe and a great example, you know, January 6th, the insurrection and uh, politicians still feeding into that kind of, you know, the big lie. Is it more, you know, their individual cognitive dissonance and their own personal beliefs? Or do you think the dissonance is stemming from wanting to not be disbanded from the tribe? What are your it's thoughts? both and you can't even separate them. It turns really? out we don't we don't perceive or believe with our brains. We perceive and believe with our groups, mm. with our tribes. What people around us believe and perceive actually influences what we actually perceive. And that's been shown in a famous lab experiment that actually goes back to the 30s. A really clever experiment where people first individually, but then also separately in groups were asked to estimate the distance that a dot on a screen was moving. Mm -hmm. And it was all a trick because actually the dot wasn't moving anywhere on the screen. Um, it's an optical illusion. So all you're actually measuring is what people think they see. Um, and it turned out that when people were individually there, they were all over the map mm -hmm. in terms of what they reported seeing. When they were in groups, they initially would have different reactions, but then they would very quickly converge on a group idea of how far that dot had moved. And that was not the average of the individuals. It was its own thing. Mm. And remember, this is not reported belief. This is not like people arguing. This is what they claim they're seeing with their eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's been confirmed many times. So you actually cannot divide individual brains from other brains in any perfect or clear way in terms of what we believe. And because of the way we're designed, you alluded to this earlier, why is it that people don't like to encounter disagreeable beliefs? Well, if we're not agreeing with the people around us, we could get thrown out, we could get killed plus. So we seek what's called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. We often subconsciously, we don't have to think about this, but we're more receptive to ideas and even perceptions that accord with our underlying view of ourselves, the world that harmonize around us. One study found that people would rather go to the dentist than be exposed to contrary political beliefs. Mm -hmm. And they also, by the way, they way overestimate the actual pain of having political conversations with people they disagree with. Mm -hmm. But this means that we don't seek out contrary beliefs. And that means we make mistakes because major fact number two, we cannot see our own errors and biases. And we are full of them. We are mm -hmm. just constantly making errors. And we have dozens of identifiable biases in our perceptions, which don't cancel each other out. They add up. Often many of them are directional in the same direction. Mm -hmm. The only hope for us is to be with people who are challenging our biases and correcting our mistakes. And that's the last thing we want to do. And you see where this leads us. In our state of nature, we make terrible mistakes. We're full of biases. We lose contact with reality. That's most of human history until like, you know, 350 years ago. Yeah. And, and yeah, like, like you were talking about, I, I remember reading about that, that dot study and I got really into, I, I got into a ton of books on conformity and groupthink and the Solomon Ash studies on conformity. Oh, and that's amazing and, stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and all that stuff, because I, I was just trying to understand what was happening to me. I was like, how are people doing this in light of evidence and all that? And, you know, now I see it with like, you know, QAnon conspiracy theorists and, you know, just all sorts of things. And I'm, I'm seeing, it and yeah, we should we should talk about you we won't get there we do constitutional knowledge but one of the things i'm sure you learned from solomon mm -hmm. ash and others 
is that what people were doing to you wasn't just trying to silence you. They were playing with your mind. <laughs> they were toying with your psyche to make you feel shame, isolation, embarrassment, horror, things mm -hmm. about yourself. So this is, these are very, we will come to this, but these weapons of psychological manipulation, they are powerful. Mm -hmm. They can be powerful even if you know about them. Yeah, it, uh, it it's interesting. Every time I, I hear about the the cyberball study of exclusion, you know, uh, I I'm like, yep, you know, because we 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 can't handle that. Like we're not built to be isolated, right? So it's our most primitive fear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was dangerous back then. If we were away from the tribe, we can get sick or injured or eaten by a tiger. Or, oh, you're you're or, dead if you're away from the tribe. Yeah. We can't hunt by ourselves. So I want to ask you about this. And, you know, uh, because you, you just mentioned it's something you, you do a great job explaining in the book. And I'm always thinking about who's the target audience, whose mind is this going to change and, and all of that whenever I'm reading excellent books on these like big ideas. So I find myself very fortunate because in 2012, I was dying. I had like a 25% chance of living, wasn't even allowed to see my son because of my drug addiction. And I came in there and it was a life. What, or death what drug was it? It uh, started with alcohol and then prescription opiates. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had congestive heart failure at the age of 27 and it was, it was brutal. Right. But uh, you know, and, and, you know, uh, I, I was about to give up, but you know, I realized, Hey, there is a chance and all this, but to what you were saying is that we need people who will challenge our beliefs. Like that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this topic. And I'm so glad that you and others come on my podcast to discuss this stuff, because for me, it was life and death. I had to have people who were there to challenge my way of thinking. And the belief I had was drugs and alcohol are the only way to solve any of my problems. Right. And I needed people to counter that. And then I started having more people who would challenge my beliefs about what girl I was dating or what job I was going to get or whatever. So I like conditioned myself to that. So with, with you being an educator and someone who's writing books like this, how, how do you, how do you recommend people work on this and thinking independently while also having people challenge their beliefs, because as you mentioned, we're not wired for it. <laughs> well, I'm going to hijack that question, if you'll permit me, and use it, it and use it as the excuse to talk about the topic of the day, the constitution of knowledge, yes. that part of the book there. <laughs> A lot of this book, the whole second half is about threats to it and how to respond to those. But I think the lasting and important contribution is really the answer to your question, which is a way of saying, okay, so we were allergic to ideas mm -hmm. that contradict what we want to believe and what improves our self-esteem. We can't see our errors. We're full of biases. What the heck do we do? How do we get ourselves into a situation where we can escape these loops of you know, cognitive and epistemic zombieism that we get into? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is the constitution of knowledge. And that is a social system that forces us out of our shelves and into managed conflict with each other. So every society, large and small, has to have some ways of settling disagreements about crucial facts, premises for action that affect the group. You know, that doesn't extend to absolutely everything, but it's, it's a lot. It's like the questions that I asked earlier or today, like lots of people believe Elvis Presley is alive. Do we send him a social security check? Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of things. Um, you know, some, some people seem to believe that there's a 
somebody named Q who has accurately warned us that there's going to be an apocalypse because some Democrats are, are was it drinking baby's blood or whatever? Yeah, yeah, the, the adrenochrome. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the historical way of settling differences of agreement and reaching factual conclusions was that basically the strong dominated the weak or society split into civil wars. Mm -hmm. And they fought about it and a lot of people got killed. Um, we did that in the 15th century, the 16th century, probably something like a third of the population of today's Germany was killed in the religious wars that went on for decades. Some people came along after that, like John Locke and also working what we now call scientists. They didn't have that term, but people like Isaac Newton, Galileo, and many who built on them and said, there must be a better way to settle our disagreements. And they said, okay, suppose instead of having rulers who are going to decide what's true and false, suppose we have rules instead. Suppose that the ideal person to decide what's true and what's not true is no one in particular. And suppose we set up two rules. First, anybody can be wrong even a prince, a priest, a Politburo, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Anyone can always be wrong, which means everyone has to be checked. Everyone has to argue. No one can say that's the end of free speech. We settled it. No one else can say anything about this. We might always be wrong. It's called the fallibilist rule. Mm -hmm. And then a second rule, which says, so how do you figure out who's right? Well, you have to check. That's empiricism. And we think, well, that's scientists and lab coats. Uh-uh. It's not about that. It's the way you check. You have to persuade other people who believe different things that you're right. Mm -hmm. That means you have to do experiments that can be replicated by anyone else, someone halfway around the world, different background, different language. They have to be able to do it. If I make an argument, other people anywhere have to be able to look at it and be able to sensibly reach the same reasonable conclusion. If I'm a lawyer, I have evidence that stands up mm -hmm. in any court across the country. Journalists write an article going to have to see, you know, anybody, any other journalist can check and follow it. So that's, that's the key thing. Because once you say that everyone gets checked by everyone else, no one in particular, you set up the possibility for this vast global network of people looking for each other's mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's what I call the reality-based community. That's the big four, our research, that's science, academia, number one. Number two, journalism. Number three, law. Mm -hmm. Actually, the notion of a fact comes originally from law, not from science. Uh, and number four, government. And all of those use this vast network of people checking other people according to disembodied rules. And that's the constitution of knowledge is what governs all that. It, it lays out the basic rules and principles, the two I named, and then a lot of, a lot of other ones that follow. Mm -hmm. And this... I claim, Chris, is our greatest invention as a species by far. Mm -hmm. This put an end to the wars in reality. It provides for toleration and free speech because no debate can ever be declared over with. It is incredible at finding knowledge. And the way it does that, it's, it's not that science doesn't make errors. It's that it makes them incredibly quickly. And it finds them incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. And this is the system which allows us when a new virus comes along to pivot in the course of days mm -hmm. to engage hundreds of thousands, probably of expert minds around the world in hundreds or thousands of institutions, organizations, labs, universities, governments to swivel all those resources in the hunt for this virus so that it's genetically decoded in a period of days 
a vaccine is designed over a weekend and it's in my arm, what, less than a year later. Yeah. Uh, we have, we make more objective knowledge probably in one morning right now than we did in the entire first 200,000 years of human history. That's what the constitution of knowledge mm -hmm. can do. No other system can do that, come close. So yeah. that's the system. It forces us into contact with people who disagree with us in a structured way, a disciplined way. That's what it is. And that's the answer to your question. Yeah. And God, I like, as you talk, I just have a bajillion things I want to talk to you. Yeah, about. I'm sorry. I filibustered there, <laughs> I, but I just wanted I, to, no, get to I, lay it all out. I, I love it. And if, if it was up to me and I'll, I'll make you a deal, John, when I become a millionaire, I'm just going to buy up all your books and just hand them around on the streets all over the country because you, you cover that. And I'm thinking about how you cover, you discuss these in both, in both the books, like just, Excellently. And something, something I was, I, uh, let's touch on this first truth, right? So this constitution of knowledge and in the new book, you talk about the importance of, you know, people coming together to find out what truth is and get closer to the truth. And, you know, and you've also made great arguments like in Kindly Inquisitors about how truth is something that we might never objectively get to, but we can get as close as possible, depending on, you know, what we're debating or talking about and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, you know, when I'm reading books like yours, I'm thinking about the general population, right? And when I look and, and you make a great example of the COVID vaccine, truth and, and knowledge and all these things and science gets us these amazing results, but it seems like most people don't want the truth. Like confirmation bias feels so, so good, you know? Um, so how do we get people to realize how beneficial truth is, whether it's in the news or whether it's in science and getting vaccinated? How do we convince people of that? Well, you might be right in the short run because truth is knowledge, objective knowledge, facts, in other words, stuff we know. Uh, truth is more like a, a guiding star like North because uh, we can never be absolutely certain of truth, but we have a lot of knowledge and it gets better every day. It gets closer to truth. So in the short run, yeah, truth, you know, knowledge, science asks us to believe a lot of things we don't want to believe. Like there are a whole lot of people in America who just don't want to believe evolution, even though it's the foundation of all biology. It's possibly the most confirmed or second or third most confirmed theory in all of science. A lot of people don't want to believe it. Uh, some people don't want to believe Elvis is dead. But on the other hand, people love learning um, and people love the fruits of that learning. And if you're in an environment that is detached from reality, where people can't come to agreement about what knowledge is or they get it wrong, you're probably living in a very ignorant, oppressive environment. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably living in a place like the Soviet Union on a big scale or Jonestown. You know about Jonestown? Oh, yeah. On oh, a yeah. small scale. Good yeah. for you. I would have thought millennials would have oh, oh, no, missed I have, that page of history. Yeah, I, I, I have someone coming on to talk about their book about cults pretty soon. So, yeah. <laughs> yep, very and so you're probably living in a world that is sectarian, cultist, magical thinking. It's probably oppressive and people hate those environments. So mm -hmm. actually, it turns out that a society that lives by, has mastered, has taken to heart the constitution of knowledge and its rules is a far better place to live and people love it compared with the alternatives. And that's one of the reasons constitution of knowledge is growing every day. Mm -hmm. One of the spectacular things about it 
is just in the last 10 years, there's been a huge increase in the number of minds, human minds coming into the reality-based community from developing countries. Mm -hmm. As people move through graduate school there and training, get involved in the sciences, in law, in journalism, we're just seeing a, a geometric growth in the depth of these networks and resources as more and more human brains plug in. Mm -hmm. And that's because this is so attractive to people. But yes, it does require rules. It requires self-discipline that is sometimes not fun in the short term. Like it is, you know, it is way easier to say, I'm not going to refute Chris. I'm just going to declare him evil and try <laughs> to destroy his life. And then he'll go and hide. And not only Chris, but millions of other people will see his example and they will also go and hide. And then I can be master of the universe as mm -hmm. I should be. There are a lot of people who want to do it that way. And there's a lot of human instinct on their side, unfortunately. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, I guess that's a good segue. Like let's, yeah. Let's, what happened? So, <laughs> so I, I wrote a book about it as many people in my audience know, but long story short, uh, I wanted to help people. Like when I got sober, I was like, you know, I want to help people who are struggling too. So I made a mental health and addiction recovery YouTube channel. It was growing all right. You know, I was working at a treatment center, but my whole reason for creating this free content was because our treatment center, it, it was, so expensive. I'm like, what about all the people who can't afford it? Like I couldn't afford treatment. I just, you know, got sober through 12 step programs because they're free. So I, I created a channel, but it wasn't reaching as many people. And you know, the goal is to reach as many people as possible. So what I started to do was blend pop culture with mental health, right? So I take a news story and say, hey, I can relate to this. If you can relate to this, here's what I would do in that situation. Eventually, uh, you know, certain celebrity YouTubers didn't like it. And it was all okay until it wasn't okay, right? So I was going exponentially, like taking off and everybody was fine with it. And then it became this moral issue just overnight. Nobody had a problem with it. And then they did. And then that spiraled into, you know how it works, misinformation, attacks, and the, the neglect of uh, evidence and facts. And I was, and that, that, that really set me out on this path to start reading. I didn't start reading until a few years ago. And now I read hundreds of books a year just because I'm just like, what is up with humans? Like, I just need to figure this out, you know? So okay. that's, that's kind of the short version of it. But is, did, was there something particular that you did or said that got you on the wrong side of, of these? <sighs> celebrities or so, was it to general tone or what what was going so on i i've been i've been thinking about this and i think i think the youtube sector is a very uh it's it's like a different world but there's this idea with uh influencers or celebrities or whatever it is that when you gain a certain amount of popularity that means that you have to be the the perfect person right? You have to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. So what kind of uh, sparked it was a leaked private message. Somebody who I private message with, they put it out there. And then they're like, oh, this guy doesn't really want to help people with mental health because he said something sassy in a private message. You see what I mean? So two completely different things. Um, like imagine in the teacher's room uh, at, a, at a school, right? They're like, oh, those little bastard kids well, yeah I, I get that 
But was it the thing that you actually said or were they looking for an excuse to nail you? And why would they have been trying to nail you at that point? Were you seen as politically incorrect, as right wing, as left wing, as I as mm -hmm. as racist? What was the sin here? That I, they saw? I have a very tough love approach. Very tough love. Uh, right. And uh, just, you know, one of the theories I have, too, is when someone when someone's trying to do good people don't like that. And they want to, you know, figure like they want to figure it out. Like, like, you know, you look, you look at people skeptically, like there's no way this person just wants to help people. They're doing it for the money. They're doing it for this. So when they find that little chink in the armor, now they could say, ah, you know, so yes, there was, you know, uh, some things deemed politically incorrect. Um, but I really got into moral philosophy, the work of Jonathan Hyde and everything like that. Like, why, why is this okay over here, but this isn't okay over here? I'll, I'll put it this way. Why is it okay for a celebrity to put all of their dirty laundry out on the internet, but it's immoral for someone to comment on it and say what we can learn from it? Does that make uh, sense? So were you perceived in some sense actually as kind of a threat to these celebrities because you were taking them seriously, talking about them? Yeah, there was this uh, this moral line that came up eventually, which there was never a problem with it, was you shouldn't talk about another person's mental health. But for example, if we talk about like Robin Williams, right? And his mental health struggles and led to suicide. I would use that to teach other people like, hey, here's what we can learn from this. What can we do? Uh, I, I take those as motivation for me to stay on my mental health, follow up with my therapists and doctors. You, you see what I mean? So I think there's so, a, good, yeah, a good way yeah. to learn so, from So was that. it literally, did you say hundreds of thousands? Oh. Of, of, <laughs> what kind of storm was it and what was the effect of it on you and on your life? So at the time of it happened, I hit about 100,000 subscribers, a little over 100,000 subscribers. But the people making videos about me were getting hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views, if not millions of views. Uh, if still to this day, it's been two years. If you type in the rewired soul on YouTube, you're not going to find my channel. You'll find the fake therapist, the, this, the, that, <laughs> and the effect it had this all, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like we're interviewing me and I, I really hope everybody gets your book, but I'm glad we're talking about this, but uh, this happened when I was on a trip at a YouTube convention. So I was in Florida across the country, away from my girlfriend, my support group and all that. And it was just, you know, people there, there's no way to really prepare for a bunch of strangers calling you a terrible person and judging your character and assuming your motives um, who don't even know you. Right. And there were, there were many people who I helped get sober or who had thanked me for encouraging them to go to therapy. And just like that, I turned into the worst person on the planet for them. Right. So it's, it's this surreal experience that I don't even know how, how, how to explain, but how did it affect me? Uh, I had to make sure I didn't relapse, which I didn't. Um, I had to worry about them going after my mom and my girlfriend. I have a son too. Thankfully, nothing happened with him. Um, there's a thing that happens in the internet communities where they do swatting. So I had to go to my local police station and say, hey, if somebody calls a fake like bomb threat, don't come to my house or call me first. Here's my phone number. There's so many things that you have to worry about. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I got interested in morality is because 
when someone's holding on tight to their belief, if they believe you're a bad person, anything is justified, right? We see it with the kind of social justice warriors, right? Anything's justified when you feel that you have the moral high ground. And I find that really interesting. Like, if I'm fighting for the rights of gay marriage or immigrants or, you know, uh, minority communities, at what, how far can I push that moral line where I'm still a good person? And it's, it's interesting how people can find that justification in those scenarios. Were you, were you emotionally crushed? Did you internalize all this? Feel you were <laughs> a terrible person, your life had caved in, or were you more like defiant, screw them, I can weather this? What was your psychological impact? Both. I, uh, I made videos uh, trying to argue with people and say these other, you know, debunk people. And I didn't know if I should take, uh, you know, legal routes for defamation or slander or whatever, but I knew that would only make it worse because then people have content to make that about. So I, I'm the type of person where when I get backed into a corner, I fight back, you know, that wasn't working. So then it, it turned into that learned helplessness, right? So I just really backed away and it, it, it was difficult because I still wanted to help people, but it, I was, I was, I was nuclear too. Like, so if anybody talked to me publicly, there's still people who talk to me behind the scenes that won't talk to me in public because they fear that that mob might resurrect and come after them. So I was very isolated, very alone. I'm very fortunate that I have, you know, my girlfriend, my family, uh, you know, uh, I was able to get therapy and all that, but what I've realized, and, and you discuss this in your book, is I don't think people understand when they get involved with these hate mobs that it can literally happen to anybody, right? Like the very first story of this that really blew up was the woman who made that, that uh, joke while flying to Africa and said she hopes she doesn't get AIDS, right? She was just a nobody. So people don't understand, and we see this all the time. You go viral, it could happen to anybody. And I wish people would kind of understand, like, don't encourage this because it could be you tomorrow. You know what I mean? So yeah, everyone I've interviewed about this says you have no idea the psychological harm that this can do until you've been through it. But but seeing all your friends suddenly being unwilling to associate with you, mm -hmm. um, canceling is a distinctive thing. It's it's not a form of criticism that rich and powerful people resent and therefore call canceling. It's right. a real thing. In the book, I have seven diagnostic signs that you're being canceled. And maybe the biggest giveaway, there are a bunch, but you mentioned a few. One is if they're lying about you. Um, in real criticism, real constitutional knowledge, you never lie about, about stuff. That's against mm -hmm. the rules. That's a firing offense. <laughs> so they lie about you. They reduce your entire career to a single point. Again, the constitution of knowledge says do the opposite. You weigh the credibility of a person's entire career when you look at their latest article. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why we have PhD programs and full professorships and all that. Um, so that's the opposite of what you're supposed to, doing, to be doing. And a big one, a total giveaway is if they're, going, if they're doing a secondary boycott and that's when they go after your friends, your professional associate, your employer. They say you should fire this person and if you associate with this person, you're suspect too. What, are you also a racist? Are you mm -hmm. also a transphobe? Um, and so you start getting midnight calls from people who say things like, you know, Chris, I'm kind of sorry for what you're going through. I'm sorry, I can't really take your side in this. I can't mm -hmm. really stand up for you. It's too dangerous. 
or they just say in public whatever they have to say to distance themselves from you. So because that's secondary boycott. Yeah. That's totally against the constitution of knowledge. Um, another big one is it's punitive and in intent. It's, it's out to punish you and out to deplatform you. So I referred to this earlier, but secret sauce of the constitution of knowledge is we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. We tried for 200,000 years learning by killing each other. The other guy's wrong. We kill him, we silence him, stone mm -hmm. him to death, imprison him, drive him out. It's really not a good way to make knowledge. The way you make knowledge is you let people make mistakes. And then if they're wrong, the consequence of that is they lose the argument. Mm -hmm. And everyone moves on and they try again and we try again. So what you're not supposed to do is inflict terrible punishments on people for being wrong. Canceling, of course, does the opposite. It's all about punishment. It's all about making you sorry so that no one else will make the same mistake. It's about deterrence. Mm -hmm. And that leads to another thing, which your story also embodies. I, I tried to pin you down. On, okay, what was it specifically you said that they didn't like? What was the proposition? Mm -hmm. But it's almost never a proposition. Because what these people are trying to do is control the information environment by chilling everything. It's like what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs right now. You can get picked up for anything. You never know what it is. They don't even have to tell you. Uh -huh. This is how Orwell's 1984 works. It's how the Soviet Union works. You, you just litter the landscape with, with landmines so that no one's sure what they can say. There is no safe harbor. It could have been, was Chris Bouet. How do you pronounce it? Boutte. It's French. Chris, it's Chris Boutte. One day for no clear reason, but because some people decided they could, they could slam him, they could drag and they could use this power over him. Mm -hmm. And then it's Jonathan Roush, the next for no apparent reason, they'll make it up. So this is not about refuting a proposition. This is about taking control of the debate and chilling people so they don't know what's safe anymore. Mm -hmm. And the point of doing that is to make people demoralized. If I had a dollar for every student and professor that I talked to in the course of this book, talking about how demoralized they are in an academic environment where you never know what it's safe to say, mm -hmm. because the standards keep moving. And because if one student is offended, then it can snowball, even if the original offense wasn't offensive the day before or wouldn't be to anyone else. Mm -hmm. You have a class full of students and students will report. It only takes one or two in a class who are getting on social media, calling someone a racist and boom, so living in these environments is frightening and toxic. They hate it. People hate it. You ask why people like the Constitution of Knowledge. That's why. It frees you from this. Uh -huh. It says that's not supposed to happen to you. And anyone who behaves in that barbaric way is committing a crime against knowledge, against truth. So stop it. Cut it out. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's, there's so many layers to it. I've really thought about revisiting it just with everything I've learned because uh, the algorithms on social media don't do you any favors, right? So for example, someone would, you, you said one of the rules is you don't lie. You don't lie about that, you know, person or theory or whatever, right? And the video lying about me would get hundreds of thousands of views. But as my channel is tanking and I break down, show evidence to the contrary, 
YouTube didn't push that out to the same amount of people. But then there's also the, the human nature aspect of it, right? Like I'd rather learn the dirt about this person than hear them try to fight oh, for yeah. their lives, right? right? So so the algorithm doesn't do you any favors. But something I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about too is, uh, and, and thank you for reminding me because you break down like these signs that you're being canceled is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like, if I, if I went out and asked 100 people what cancel culture is, I might get a ton of different definitions. It feels like we haven't narrowed it down because if it seems like there's even a lot of people who I respect who I've seen say, you're not being canceled. It's just you being held accountable or it's you being criticized. I've and, heard that. It's not cancel culture. It's accountability culture. Yeah. And... And it's and something that I define cancel culture is is this disproportionate type of punishment, right? Like, for example, someone's past being brought up. Should they lose their job today? Is that really proportionate to something they did 10 years ago? You know, in those situations, it seems very out of proportion. And it kind of blows my mind because I think uh, I'm more forgiving than others because nine years ago when I was a, a drug addict and alcoholic, I was a terrible person. I would lie, cheat, steal, wasn't there for my son, all these things, but I'm living proof that you can change. And what I've learned working with addicts is if I don't give somebody the hope that they can change, why are they even gonna try, right? So it seems very counterproductive to cancel someone and say, you don't deserve a platform. You don't deserve a job. You don't deserve any of this stuff for screwing up. Oh, you apologize, well, that's fake and we don't accept it. Where's the incentive for people to change, you know? Oh, you're so naive. <laughs> this is not about improving the world. This is not about persuading people. This is not about finding truth. It's none of those good things. So, so now I'm going to introduce a concept because it's the constitution of knowledge is the big concept of the first half of my book. And that's, that's the important part. And, you know, when Aristotle and Plato are long forgotten, my book will be remembered because of all the important ideas in the first half. <laughs> the second half is the topical half, and it's focused on the concept of information warfare, what I call epistemic warfare, or in other words, you're being manipulated. So this is what's really going on with you, and it's also what's going on with MAGA and the big lie right now and some other things that we should talk about. What is epistemic warfare? It is organizing and manipulating the social and media environments for political advantage and specifically to dominate, divide, disorient, and ultimately demoralize your target population. So this is what Vladimir Putin is doing in the 2016 election when he's using his bots and his trolls to create mm -hmm. artificial protests against each other across the street to divide America. You find divisions, you exploit them, you widen them. That's one thing they do. Another is to dominate. That's trolling, that's uh, attention hijacking. That's where you, um, people feel a deep need to defend their tribes, their sacred beliefs. So if I insult you, if, if I you know, denounce you as what, however people denounced you, how can you not defend yourself? If I insult your tribe, how can you not defend yourself? So you're gonna rush to the barricades and say, no, that's, that's all false. Uh -huh. But in doing that, of course, you're giving the trolls attention. This is not an internet invention. Adolf Hitler was a brilliant user of this. In Mein Kampf, he says, paraphrasing, um, it doesn't matter if they're insulting us or mocking us 
as long as they can't stop thinking about us. Mm -hmm. That's what Donald Trump was doing every day with those outrageous tweets. And he knew what he was doing because he told us. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the things. That's how they dominate. They seize our attention against our will. They disorient, um, which is tactics like also used by Trump, the fire hose of falsehood. That's, that's a term academics invented for mm -hmm. what Putin does and what Trump did, which is where you put out so many lies, falsehoods, conspiracy theories, exaggerations, um, half-truths over so many channels so fast that no one can keep up. They no longer know what's true or false, who mm -hmm. to trust. The, the, the media can't keep up. Everyone is just, just bewildered. Um, and then there's what was done to you. That's, that's another form of domination. So this is not about any of those good motives. This is not about improving you as a person or helping people heal. This is about some people using powerful techniques of information warfare to dominate the digital media space. Mm -hmm. You're just a tool. You could have been me. You could have been your dog or your, or your mom. You know, it could have been anyone. The point is to create an example. Mm -hmm. And it worked in your case, right? because they managed to get all these people and all these eyeballs. Sometimes they try it and it doesn't work. They tried it on Steven Pinker, who's a famous psychologist mm -hmm. and it, it misfired, but that's okay. They go on and find someone else. Mm -hmm. It's not about, but it's, it's not about ideas. It's not about helping the world. It's about dominating. Yeah. And, and I, I gotta tell you, and uh, you know, I, I haven't said this enough to authors and things like that, but uh, like I, I truly appreciate books like yours or Greg's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, uh, I recently spoke with Megan Dom, but it seems like all of you are, you know, if nothing else, you're creating a community of people who are getting tired of it. So mm -hmm. uh, I- That's a big deal. After, That's gonna change it over after, time. That's gonna change it. Yeah, like after everything I went through, I feel like now, cause I'm nervous even like, talking about it when you ask me questions about it, like, oh my God, what if they come back? But I feel comfortable now that, you know, I know that there is a community out of, of people out there and, uh, you know, people with, you know, books like yourself who dive into it and, and like, hey, this isn't okay. We should be doing this instead. And yeah, we'll yeah. People are wising up and groups are forming, resource groups are taking shape. And there's, there's now a kind of um, confederation of people who've been canceled or people who oppose canceling. There's a group called Counterweight Support, which is mm. supports employees in the US and Great Britain mm. who find themselves at risk of getting fired because of what's being said about them or who for that matter are feel they're being coerced into saying things about racism they don't believe. So there's all kinds of support developing and you had the bad misfortune. You're still at the front end of this, right? The modern version of canceling, the internet-based version, not the, you know, German in the 1930s version. Yeah, It's using new technologies in somewhat unfamiliar ways. And it's only about five years old or six years old when it hits you. And you don't know what to do. Like you think the whole world is caved around, down around your head, but people are wising up now. And these groups are forming and that's a game changer over time, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I know about these resources now. So, Here's a question, because I always, I'm always trying to think about both sides. I like to argue with myself. I want to make sure I don't fall into confirmation bias. So here's my question for you, John, because we're talking about this and the, you know, uh, kind of trying to control the narrative and have the power and everything. Do you think that anything should be 
off limits is anything the screaming fire in a crowded room for example how accountable should Trump be for what happened on January 6th? Uh, Alex Jones was deplatformed for, you know, saying Sandy Hook never happened and people were going and harassing the families, right? So that's where I kind of struggle with this, where speech influences action, even though we don't know when that's going to happen. So is, is, there, is there a line or should we just hope that the constitution of knowledge helps everybody have better conversations around the information and misinformation and all of that? Well, the constitution of knowledge is about drawing lines um, and they're also legal lines, right? Mm. Free speech doesn't mean you can commit securities fraud. It uh, doesn't mean you can incite immediate violence right away. Um, there's all kinds of things that you, you can't do in terms of legal speech and they're well-established and, and pretty well-contained. And that law is perfectly fine with me. And then there's the stuff the Constitution of Knowledge does. So the way that works is typically it, it doesn't ban speech. It does the opposite. It's the only system that's based on free speech because the whole point of the Constitution of Knowledge is to put people in con connection, uh, manage conflict with people they disagree with. And that means you've got to have diversity of viewpoint. The science Journalism, none of this stuff works without viewpoint diversity, because if everyone's saying the same thing, it means they're all making the same mistakes and we don't find our mistakes. So yeah. premium on free speech. Free speech does not mean freedom of reach. And that's the other big thing the Constitution of Knowledge does. It says, well, you can, you know, Chris Boutte can, I mean, he can say anything he wants. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we have to pay attention to it. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're going to put it in the textbooks. Most new ideas that most people come up with are complete garbage. Um, so a lot of the time, the rest of the system doesn't even acquire their claims. Sometimes it acquires them and, and then the different, uh, the different people and organizations that are weighing them will say, well, that's, you know, that's not a good hypothesis and, and, and they won't pass it along through the system. Mm -hmm. So the point is you need a system that's designed so that it promotes, it's more likely to promote statements that are true than are false. And at every stage, it's, it's like this big network of minds and organizations, minds, M-I-N-D-S. And it's like, if I have an idea and I can get it published, that's the first step. It goes to a publisher, then it may go out for peer review and other people and institutions will look at it. Then if it's published, it's gonna get, maybe there's gonna be a conference about it. So it'll get passed to other parts of the system. So each of those nodes is like a pump or a filter. Mm -hmm. And it's saying, is this good or not so good? If it's good, they pass it along. If it's not so good, they say, ah, never mind. So over time, as this system works, it's really good at quickly figuring out what are good ideas passing them on, amplifying them, as it's now called, mm -hmm. and suppressing, not punishing, not banning, but just dropping, just ignoring the ones that aren't so good. Works incredibly mm -hmm. well. It's what science does. So then you get social media. And unfortunately, it works the opposite way. For all the reasons that you just discussed in your own case, as you see, the algorithms are tuned for eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And what do people tend to look at the most? The stuff that is outrageous conspiracy theories, stuff that flatters them, stuff that is fun to believe, crazy shit. Yeah. Um, so those algorithms flip the pumps, they pass along the bad stuff and filter out the good stuff. 
And then someone like Donald Trump or trolls or whoever comes along, Vladimir Putin, your counselors, and they say, wow, well, we can take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to use that and we're going to put bilge out there. We're going to target it. We'll develop huge followings and we'll confuse people, say lots of things that are false. We'll make money or we'll get power. Mm -hmm. So the question now isn't what are you banning really from the internet? Because I don't really think that you can ban stuff very effectively with so many channels online. Mm -hmm. The question is going to be, can we change these systems, these algorithms, these terms of service, the way the platforms engage with people, the way, they, the way we train ourselves and discipline ourselves to engage with them? Can we change those things in ways that will turn the system so that truth will flow downhill instead of uphill? Mm -hmm. So that instead of barely fighting its way through, if it even makes it through, it starts to trickle through at a better rate than the falsehood. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. So the whole idea of so free speech, not free speech online, it misses the point, which is tuning the system in a pro-truth mm -hmm. direction. And a lot of really smart people at a lot of companies, a lot of think tanks, research institutes, academia, even governments and journalists are, are trying to solve that problem right now. It's, it's a wicked hard problem. Mm -hmm. But then it always was, right? It was a wicked hard problem when Galileo was thrown in jail. People were trying <laughs> to figure out how can you have science if you get thrown in jail? Yeah. And you know, uh, it, it's interesting, too, because this conversation has actually made me a little more optimistic, and hopefully uh, <laughs> more people are getting your book to, to read about this and learn and see what we could do on a personal level. But if I go to my pessimistic side, right, as you're explaining this and, you know, and what we need to do, like, because science has its own, you know, its own checks and balances, right? Uh, and you know, maybe I've made the mistake of reading way too many books on how flawed that can be with biases and, you know, publication bias, all sorts of stuff. But anyways, so as you're explaining this, it seems like there's so many layers, right? So there's some people who say at the government level, we need to regulate this like we do utilities and the government needs to have more of a say in it, right? But then you have the social media companies how do we incentivize them where, you know, cause I'm a content creator. So on YouTube, I know how to make money on YouTube. It's keeping people on your video, right? So that, you know, uh, people, like you said, people take advantage of it and Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. So how do we incentivize a platform like, hey, uh, I, know, I know in this capitalist world, it's great for you to make as much money as possible, but let's, let's not make so much money and prioritize truth and knowledge, right? So those are two big layers that seem very difficult, or does it start from the bottom up with, with it's, us? It's both, it's both. You put it so well because people ask me, what do you do about this stuff? And unfortunately, a problem with this book is it's not your three points that solve it. It's an all of society response in which many institutions and organizations respond in many different ways that are appropriate to themselves. Like Twitter is going to deal with this differently than Facebook, mm -hmm. which is going to deal with this differently than Substack, all of which are going to deal with it very differently from, say, the Washington Post. They're all facing different versions of disinformation, conspiracy theories, chilling, all of these other things. So, but you got the right basic division, I think, which is there's two kinds of things that you can do, and we have to do them both. One is top down, 
that's institutional reform. And the other is bottom up. And that's what we can do in our own lives and our personal communities. So top down is going to be what I just talked about. It's going to be all kinds of innovations, new guidelines, guardrails, policies, system redesigns in many different ways that are going to gradually over time begin to get a handle on this problem. And if it makes you feel any better, yeah, it's a wicked problem, but we have faced it before. We faced it after the printing press. Okay, bad example, because then we had a hundred years of war in which millions and millions of people died. But another example is better for us. That's the reform of the news business, which in the 19th century in America mm -hmm. was a toxic sewer of extreme partisanship and fake news. Because their business model, same thing that happened in digital, is they got the penny press, which was subscriber-based, and then they got uh, offset printing, which allowed them to get these huge rolls of newsprint and print you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of newspapers in two hours. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the incentives are, so we'll make money by getting as many eyeballs as we can and then selling the advertisers. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And where did that lead? It led to so-called yellow journalism, fake news, partisanship, may have started a whole war. But here's the problem with that. And it's the same thing that Facebook faces and now publicly acknowledges, which is if you create a product that's toxic for its users and bad for society, Mm -hmm. that makes everybody angry, that's not a good business model. Mm -hmm. Like even if it is addictive, you're going to wind up, you know, in a bad place. So in journalism, about 100 years ago, some actual nameable individuals and organizations say, okay, we need rules of the road. Mm -hmm. We can't keep spiraling downward. So they create the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And the first thing ASNI does is say, so what are some rules going to be? Let's have an ethics code for journalists. Mm. To us today, it seems obvious. Don't make stuff up. Um, make sure and source everything you write. If you're wrong, print a correction. Well, someone had to think of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you got the development at the same time. Journalism schools based at universities began creating a professional ethos, training people in the way we train doctors, lawyers, scientists saying, here's the code, mm -hmm. right ways to do it, wrong ways to do it. You begin to set up prizes, which are incentives, like the Pulitzer Prize, but there are many, many others mm -hmm. saying, if you do good journalism, if you follow the rules, that's what gets you famous. And then they start doing that and they begin retraining their audiences by presenting a different kind of product and saying, hey, what's in this newspaper today? It's going to be true. And if it's not true, we're going to fix it. And readers begin to develop a market for that. And that snowballs and you get a upward spiral instead of a downward spiral. And by the 1940s, we've got Edward R. Murrow. We've got one of the golden ages of American journalism. So the question becomes, can we replicate something like that now? And the answer is Facebook is trying with its oversight board. Mm -hmm. Twitter is trying with a, a suite of uh, changes in the way the platform works that are trying to slow people down. So we use our non-reptile yeah. brands. Yeah. All kinds of things at many levels. So I'm sorry, that's only half the answer. I apologize. Yeah. But that's the top down stuff. The bottom up stuff is what do we do as individuals? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, if we're part of the reality based community, this, this is not necessarily true if I work in daycare. But if we're part of the reality based community and say, have a podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, we don't engage in canceling. We're trying to be scrupulously accurate, even when we don't want to be. 
if we see someone engaged in canceling, we call them out. If a friend gets canceled, we go to them. We support them privately and publicly. Mm -hmm. We look at the institutions that we're in and say, how can I improve things here? How can we have a more, more responsibility to truth? How can we be better citizens of the constitution of knowledge? Mm -hmm. And that could be anything from adjusting the curriculum at a university to having podcasts about attack on knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are literally countless ways that each of us can be better citizens and help other people be better citizens in the constitution of knowledge. Uh, disinformation. A lot of it is just about training ourselves. Don't hit that retweet button when you see the conspiracy theory. That turns out to be really important. Mm -hmm. Don't believe everything you hear. Yeah. Be careful about stuff. Um, so there's all kinds of individual ways that we can do this. And the truth is, if we get these things right, and we have succeeded in, in pre prior disruptions, we win, they lose, but mm -hmm. no guarantees because we've got to get a bunch of stuff right. Sorry, I filibustered. No, I, I, I love it. And and no, like you, right there, like I, I that that inspires me, right? Like the thing, you know, if I'm just talking about me personally, like that's that's why I started creating content. You know, I know like the addiction epidemic, uh, the stats for 2020 came out, 93,000 people died from overdose death. And, you know, so, so many more are addicted yeah. and struggling. And, you know, uh, a lot of these stats don't even account for people who die from drunk driving or liver failure or heart failure from alcoholism. But anyways, it seems like this problem that's so big and it needs so many levels. But I started making content like if I could just reach a couple people, maybe, maybe they can reach a couple people. And so that's where I get inspired with this. So the thing I personally, have, the thing I personally have to work on is my fear of being attacked for trying to promote this way of thinking in these changes. And, and it's a totally reasonable fear. Uh, when, <laughs> when people are, the, the whole point, one of the big tactics that, that information propagandists are using is they're isolating you. Because mm -hmm. once you're isolated, you're demoralized, you're dead. Remember I said that, that what this is about is dominating, dividing, disorienting, and ultimately demoralizing the target population. That last one is the key because mm -hmm. demoralization is demobilization. That's when people feel like, you know, there's nothing I can do. I'm weak. Mm -hmm. I'm helpless. Resistance is futile. There's so much disinformation out there. There's so much canceling. They have so much power the, you know, whatever it is, the, the woke people have taken over the universities and now they're in the newsrooms and there's nothing I can do. They want you to think that they're 10 feet tall mm -hmm. and that you're helpless because when you feel helpless, they win. Mm -hmm. But when Chris Boutte says, you know what? I can do stuff. I have a podcast. I have a voice. I am not letting myself be silenced. Yes, they have tools, they're intimidating, but in the end, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. Mm -hmm. Because a few people like you telling the truth, that's what brought the Soviet Union down, right? Mm -hmm. Sakharov, Solzhenitsyn, it doesn't actually take that many to change the whole dynamic. Yeah. That's, you know, that's kind of why they want to shut you up. So the first thing I say, it's the chap title of my last chapter, unmute yourself. Mm -hmm. I realize this is hard to do and you do need friends and support. And that's why it's so important that these groups are popping up, but unmute yourself, have some confidence that if you speak out, if you make your voice heard, there are always going to be other people around you. They're often the quiet people in the room, but they're going to be listening. Yeah. And some of them are going to say, you know, Boutet's got a point. I think maybe he's right. And then maybe they speak out 
Mm-hmm. And the thing about spirals of silence, these artificial environments where people are so chilled and intimidated that no one's speaking out and you've got these crazy theories that are you know, governing because no one will speak out against them. Spirals of silence can be broken very quickly. Mm. It doesn't take that many voices to do it. And that's why the Chinese and the Soviets are so insistent on catching every dissident. It only takes a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's stuff that we've learned from like, you know, the conformity studies and, you know, with when one person speaks out and says, hey, uh, I don't think this is right. You know, hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes or whatever it is. And people kind of wake up. Yeah. So- yeah. I, we should summarize that very briefly for people. So I think what you're alluding to, so there's a famous experiment. I won't do details, but you put eight people in a room and you tell them they're getting a vision test. But the trick is one of them's the real experimental subject. The other seven are all actors. And they're told, they're given a simple vision test, but seven out of the eight, the actors all give the wrong answer. And it's an obviously wrong answer. Like yeah. any, any two-year-old would immediately see it's designed to be obvious. Well, a third of the time in trials of this experiment, the experimental subject will conform with the group, either because they don't want to speak out and be seen as the one person who's sticking out, or because they think, well, all these people say that, maybe they're right, maybe it's a trick and I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. You can change the whole dynamics of the experiment if of the seven actors, six give the wrong answer, one gives the right answer, then the experimental subject will get it right 95% of the mm-hmm. time. All it takes is one ally and you, Chris, can be that ally. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's what gives me hope. And I want to wrap this up, but I I will not sleep tonight if I don't ask you one more question, because it's been bothering me since Kindly Inquisitors. And Which was two weeks ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> so and 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 if if you feel that we'd have to get too deep into this, say we'll do a part two, but one thing that you completely exploded my brain with was you made a solid argument. I am a person who teeters on atheist, agnostic, but you made an argument of why people, you know, should be able to believe in, you know, their God, their religion, and, you know, still work in science and all these things. And, and for me, I look at that and I, I feel like you eventually get to a point where if I'm questioning someone about their scientific belief and their theory, I feel like I'm going to get to a point where they'll be like, well, because God of the Bible says so. And I'm like, I just wasted two hours with you. You just defaulted back to, uh, to your religion. And now where do we go from here? So I, I, I just can't see how science and religion can coexist. But I feel like you well, know, they, you've made some They do, arguments. objectively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> They're both here. Yeah. And um, the secret of the, a secret, I've talked about a lot of secret sauces as constitutional knowledge has. It's really a miraculous invention. It's, it's just extraordinary what it does, what it's accomplished. And one of its biggest accomplishments is it's actually, for the most part, ended the wars of religion that we used to have, the creed wars. And it also, to a large extent, has ended the war between science and religion because I call another word for the constitution knowledge and, and all that is liberal science. This is a liberal mm-hmm. system. Liberal comes from free. And so here's one of the other, as I, as I say, sort of secret sauces. Other systems of deciding what's true tend to be totalistic. 
because as we just said a minute ago, any dissenter is a threat to the social order. You have to squash that person or exile that person mm-hmm. because they might go off and form their own sect. And then they might come back and challenge you and throw you out of power. They might convince people that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes religion a life or death matter, the subject of countless wars. Um, and it leads to totalitarian governments like the USSR, like China today, in which dissent can never be allowed. Mm-hmm. And this system of, of knowledge, of a force that's used to coerce people into knowledge, it implicates every sphere of life, home life, church life. So constitutional knowledge doesn't do any of that. It says, you know what? We have the exclusive right to decide what goes in textbooks, what's mm-hmm. taught as objective scientific knowledge, as facts in court, as articles in journals. But that's it. It's just mm-hmm. those public places that we care about. You're free to believe anything you want, including mm-hmm. QAnon. And you're free to conduct your own life mm-hmm. apart from those specific things like, well, lots of examples. But you're free to conduct your own life however you want to. When you're at home with your family, you don't have to be Spock. You don't have to be a yeah. scientist questioning everything all the time. Where does the authority of the father come from? Mm-hmm. When you're in church, you don't have to do scientific experiments to decide whether it's okay to worship the divinity of Jesus Christ or whoever you're worshiping. Mm-hmm. In fact, you'd be crazy to do that. So like liberal democracy in the U.S. Constitution, which says we have no control over what families do, mm-hmm. um, the Constitution of Knowledge creates this vast personal space for us to live mm-hmm. our faith lives and our home lives and our civic lives within communities of belief mm. outside sort of the realm of knowledge making and experiment and science and journalism. And that is a huge unprecedented social innovation. Yeah. So and that's how they live together. So they do. So just let me know if I'm hearing you correctly, because I think my biggest concern is morality, right? So I think of the work of like Paul Bloom, Jonathan Haidt, and, uh, you know, others who uh, like Robert Wright, you know, he wrote a book of Michael Schumer. But anyways, so you're basically saying as long as you keep that separate, right, as long as you are not trying to present, you know, your moral beliefs as fact compared to what we know about evolutionary psychology and science and all these things, you're free to believe whatever you want. And that's kind of how we separate those two things that there's, there's kind of a time and a place. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, that's right. And it's this balance that we all have to keep and it's hard, but that's freedom of speech and discipline of fact. Mm. And we have to try to do both. And that goes for religion too. You can have whatever religion you want, but if you want to say something is factual and put it in a textbook or have the government use it as the basis for regulation, well, there's some things you're going to have to do. Yeah. And they're going to require some time and some discipline and some expertise. Um, But if you don't want to do those things, you know, you're free to go on about your life. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Okay. Now I can sleep better tonight than I was able to ask that. So, uh, so yeah, before I let you go for everybody who was just drawn into this conversation, what is it? Boom. So tell us where can we get the book and where can people find you? And I need you to answer this because I need to find more of your writing since you take such gaps between your books. So my website is jonathanrausch.com and I put many, not all, but many of my articles on there. 
I write a lot. So they're, you know, it's kind of the bigger ones, but that will lead you to more than you could read in a lifetime. Um, the book is available at, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all fine bookstores near you for the, the low, low sum of, oh, the price isn't on here. Well, it's a low, low sum. And there's it also is. an audio book and there's an ebook. And it is a masterpiece. Uh, I, I promised you that. So you won't regret buying it. Yep. And you have my, my stamp of approval. I actually listened to the audiobook of that one as well. It was phenomenal. Was it good? Was it well read? Yep. I love it. I, I listen to 2x speed. That's how I get through so many books. So even it even translates to two times the speed too. So it's good. Really then you can good. read it twice. Yes. No, absolutely. I, that, it's all one of my, one of my books. I'm definitely going to revisit as, as well as kindly inquisitors, but yeah, John, thank you again. So, so much for your time. And yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. I enjoyed it. Greg Lukianoff was right. And so I need to thank him for the recommendation and thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. All right, everybody, there you have it. That was my conversation with Jonathan Rausch about his brand new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And honestly, this was one of the longer episodes. I could have talked to this dude for hours. It was so interesting talking with him. He's such a, a wise guy, and I, I just love the way he looks at different things and thinks about this, and and the, the practical solutions, just about how we can all kind of have better conversations and what we can all do to kind of play our part to kind of, you know, make this world a little bit better of a place. So, you know, we get closer to truth and we're able to have, you know, disagreements about different things and not freak out on each other. So please, please, please do yourself a favor. Like this isn't even doing me or John a favor. Do yourself a favor and get a copy of this book. And I highly recommend you go back and check out Kindly Inquisitors. Like I said, the craziest part to me was how much is the same from what over 20 years ago you know what i mean so check that out and if you haven't yet i'm gonna go ahead and link uh greg lukianoff's and uh jonathan Haidt's book the coddling of the american mind down below too there's a ton of books like this like you probably heard my interview with megan dom a few weeks ago where we talked about uh some similar topics but there are a lot of people writing books on this from different angles different perspectives and i think they're some of the most important books that you know we can be reading right now and spread spreading the word about all right so speaking of spreading the word by the way if you if you like this conversation please do me a favor and share it on social media all right not only to get the word out about the book but it also helps the podcast and everything like that and if you're not yet if you want to help the podcast because you're new here just make sure you're following or subscribe whether you're on spotify or apple if you're over on apple take two seconds take two seconds leave a rating and review you've been here listening to this conversation for over an hour so just take two more seconds leave a rating and review all this stuff really helps with the algorithms to help get the podcast out there to more people so they can hear these conversations and get introduced to some awesome new books all sorts of stuff all right but if you're looking to support the podcast in other ways there are some links down below uh, i've written uh, a few books like one of them is called canceled inside youtube cancel culture it is about my experience uh with everything i went through that we talked about in this episode i also have some mental health books uh you can become a patreon and there is also a link down below it is an affiliate link for better help online therapy like i mentioned one of the things that helped me through that difficult time was therapy and i was using better help i was talking to my therapist on a weekly basis and she saved my butt all right so if if you are looking for a licensed therapist 
to work with from the comfort of your home, check out BetterHelp Online Therapy uh, using my affiliate link down in the description below. All right. But yeah, make sure you're following John over on Twitter. Make sure you're following me on Twitter and Instagram too. We got another great episode coming for you tomorrow. But until then, enjoy the rest of your day and I will see you tomorrow.